You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Well, good morning. How are you today? Wonderful. Well, I'm excited to uh, to talk about today's uh, topic. However, it is one uh, that must be approached very carefully. Uh, we are taking a look at the strategies of the enemy. We've been looking at uh, Satan's favorite lies that he often convinces people, even believers, to to live and to believe and, and to have in their mind. And uh, we've been kind of looking at some of these. Uh, the, the devil is not to be taken lightly, uh, but at the same time, he has very limited ability. And his greatest power is deception. Because if he can get us believing a lie, then he's got us. So we have been talking and taking a look at some of the enemy's favorite strategies, exposing their lies. And uh, there's this perception of Satan that he's this kind of, you know, red, you know, suit, horns, tail, pitchfork, especially, you know, Halloween's this week. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of devils on the street on a Thursday and Friday night. And at parties, I'm sure there's already been some devils and uh, but that's not what the real devil looks like. In fact, the devil in the Bible is described as someone who's very beautiful. Someone who is, uh, who's uh, really something of a reflection of the awe of God. And he wanted to keep some of that for himself, some of that glory, some of that honor that was to go to God. And, and that what caused the great division. We'll talk about that in the next coming weeks. Uh, but he is not this kind of vile, distorted horned being sitting on a throne somewhere. Uh, he's more of a less, he's a fallen angel who is now uh, on, on a rampage to just to destroy everything that God has called good. So uh, what I want you guys to do today is I want to invite you guys to text me uh, your questions today and I will take a look at them at the end of the service. All right. Uh, if we have time. So here's my text. Um, it's in the worship guide. If you want to check it out, that's my phone number under the uh, Young Adults Group of the Zone. But my phone number is 469-877-1101. That's 469-877-1101. And text me this morning if you have questions concerning uh, the afterlife, heaven, hell, death. And if I don't get to your question in service, I will get to your question today and respond to you personally by text after service. All right, today is a big lie, and that is that everyone will make it to heaven. Everybody's going to heaven. Um, that God somehow grades on a curve. That somehow uh, that, that everyone goes to a better place. That, that, that a loving God would never send uh, someone or have a place like hell. The Satan, uh, you know, Satan has been very succe- uh, successful with this one. Because this has permeated even the church. There's a, a lot of Christians, maybe even some of you, the struggle with the possibility that God would ever have designed a place like hell. And I want to tell you, if we buy this lie, we usually think we're on the passing side of that grade curve. Uh, we usually think that if we buy this lie, then somehow we're going to make it. That's why we hope it's a... It's, it's true because we want to be on that. Hey, everyone goes to hell. I know I'm not perfect. I'm not living for Jesus. I know, but Hey, you know what? Because I'm a, I'm better. I'm more good than I am bad. Or I've made up for my bad. Jesus becomes one path of many. Uh, we're all going to make it. Uh, this is what we say at funerals. This is what's known as funeral assurance. 
that a lot of people uh, at funerals are um, are given that you know they were a good person, and uh, you know we're always they're at a better place now um, that uh, um, that that they're okay and we're okay and that we're everybody here's going to see this person again and uh, because you're okay and I okay we don't have to worry about it. the truth is according to the Bible we're not all okay and so what we're going to do we're going to take a, a, a careful look at the Bible and be sure of this that death is one hundred percent for real death is for certain. There's a lot of uh, perceptions of what hell is like, and some of them have been humorous over the years. I know Farside's been some of my favorite cartoons on this issue. And uh, a lot of us, we think, well, you know, um, it's okay, it's cool, it's a mythological. Um, it's, it's not a place where everybody really literally goes. It's all make-believe. Well, I want you to know this, that, that there's a one-in-one chance that you're going to die. 100% guarantee that you're going to die. Everyone in this room will be dead one day. And uh, there's a really good chance, really good chance that most of us will not live to be 100. And many of us are already good ways through our lives. So, you know, uh, some of us are, are, are have a date with destiny that's coming up maybe sooner than others. The fact is, some of you were brought here today for this very moment because you needed to hear this today. And uh, death is probably the most painful fact of life, uh, because we love people. And when they pass on, I've, I've had a brother pass away a few years ago. I had my mother pass away before that. Of course, my grandmother who helped raise me, she passed away before that. I've had dear and deep and close friends that were like brothers to me that have passed away. My heart aches, my heart hurts. And, uh, even as a pet owner, I've had pets that have passed away and that is just as painful because they're family and, uh, you know, death is painful. It's a painful fact of life. And this is what Hebrews 9.27 says. It says, just as people are destined to die once, everybody say once, once, that means there is no reincarnation. There is no come back and do-overs. There's no, you know, nine lives. There's no, you know, game replay. It says, just as we are destined to die one time, and after that one time, it says, after that, to face judgment. That means uh, after we die, we face judgment. After that, immediately after that, we face judgment. That means we don't hang around. We don't float around. We don't haunt houses. We don't haunt or protect family members, biblically speaking, ghosts are demons impersonating people because you're appointed to die one time. And then after that, you face God. And then he says, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. We have hope in Christ. Everyone here has a date with destiny it might be today or it might be 80 years from today. Some argue that to say that you might know what happens is pure arrogance. In fact, some of you here are probably already going in that direction. That if Ted makes any absolute claims, he's arrogant. Well, I'm just going to follow what the Bible says and it has shaped my opinions and I hope it shapes yours as well. So what happens after death? Well, the truth is, What you believe about the afterlife will shape not only the afterlife, but this life too. Because what you believe about this today will shape your actions. It will truly shape your hopes and it will shape your pursuits 
Because what you think about the afterlife determines how you live this life. It determines your motivations in this in this life. If you're, for example, an atheist and you do not feel there is an afterlife, then you might feel that there's some liberty to live any way you want. As long as you're a decent person, that you can free to do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. If you're someone who's a Buddhist or a Hindu and you believe in reincarnation, you might think, well, you know, as long as I have more positives at the end of my life, then I'm going to come back as something better and I'll get to try it and do it all over again. And and, uh, you know, if you believe in, in the possibility that there is no hell, for example, then you might, you know, you know what? Well, if I don't give my life to Jesus, well, at least I don't have to face hell. I cease to exist. And some people, they can live with that. And if you feel like works, if everybody gets to heaven, if you're good, then, then you're just going to spend your whole life trying to be a good person, trying to outweigh the good over the bad. See, what you believe about this will shape your life, will shape your eternity. So let's dive into this. Initially, here's some lies that we believe about this. Number one, some of those lies, as long as we are sincere, any path works. Many want to believe this. This lie has been very successful in churches. Another lie is a God of love would never send anyone to hell. Many think this and accept this. It's become taboo to talk about hell. A few things are as divisive as talking about hell. Uh, they'll say, man, in heaven, we can talk about that all day. No problem. Talk about hell. Stand back. That's awfully judgmental of you. And I posted on Facebook this last week something you might want to share is about when we talk about hell, we need to be, first of all, people who talk with grace because this is not about arguing doctrine. This is about people's destiny, and we need to have respect and kindness and be people of grace when we talk about hell. Number two, we need to talk about hell with competence. We don't need to be confused, but we need to be clear. We need to have a sense of what we're talking about and not just kind of our opinions, but basically Bible-shaped thoughts. We need to be people who speak with clarity and that we don't give God or the people of God a bad name. And third, we need to speak about hell with humility because this is something that we all have to make a decision on. And what I ask you to do is today is to pray through the service with me and that you would humbly approach these scriptures and let God shape your view on this today. Uh, another lie that people have is that lots of good deeds can balance out a few bad deeds. We think if there's more good than the bad, it's okay. Most people buy this one. Also, uh, another lie we believe is that only an arrogant bigot thinks Jesus is the only way. Today, tolerance tells us that if we in any way, shape, or form say that somebody else is wrong, then we're a hater. And that's not what tolerance is. Tolerance is respect, respecting people as human beings and giving them a sense of respect as a human. But I can completely disagree with you and still respect you and tolerate a difference of opinion. We need to make sure that when we talk about this, you're not being a bigot if you have a view on this. So hopefully you'll have a greater understanding. So let's take a look at these because when it comes to spiritual truth, what matters is the truth. So. The truth about sincerity. That first one, well, as long as we're sincere, any path works. Well, I want you to think about this. Understand this. Sincerity cannot turn a lie into truth. Let me put it this way. If a doctor were to give me the wrong prescription and I were to go and and fill that prescription 
But it was the wrong prescription. No matter how much I believed that these pills were going to help me, it's not going to help me. No matter how sincerely and faithfully I take that medication. In fact, it might not just not do anything, but it might kill me. Even though I'm sincerely believing that I'm doing the right thing. It's not going to turn a lie into a truth. And, you know, if you've ever gotten lost, anybody here ever gotten lost? Taking the wrong directions? Anybody here? Yeah, we all have. What if you put in, man, I've gone to some people's houses and they've sent me to a completely different address. GPS isn't 100% accurate. It's pretty good. But, you know, no matter how faithfully you take every right turn, left turn, it doesn't matter how faithfully you take that exit. If the directions are wrong, it doesn't matter how sincerely you follow that path, you won't arrive at your destination. You'll arrive at the wrong place. We do the same thing at work. No matter how we approach work, we can't turn a lie into a truth. No matter how sincere you are in school, if you are writing the wrong answers, you can't change that false. No matter how sincerely you think you're right into an A, you can't change your grade. In every era of life, sincerity cannot trump the truth. The afterlife is one of those areas we think that our opinion and sincerity will somehow trump the truth. Know this, that when it comes to knowing God, truth matters. In fact, Jesus talking to a woman, he was leading her to the light of who he was. He was at a well with a woman who was a Samaritan, and he was talking to an outsider He was talking to someone whose society rejected as a Samaritan. And as a man, he was not to be talking to this lower class woman. So Jesus was breaking the barriers, leading this woman to an understanding of who he was. She turns when he starts reading her mail, when he says, hey, you know what? You've been sleeping around a lot. You've been living with a lot of guys. The guy you're living with now is not your husband. He's like reading her mail. As soon as he starts getting involved in her life and and teaching her about her life and her need for God, she turns the conversation to an argument, which is what we often do, which is what happens when you're talking to a friend about God, all of a sudden, well, they want to, they throw out these tough, you know, non-answerable or non-important questions, not because they want to know an answer, but because they're trying to change the subject. And she does that. She turns all of a sudden, well, well, hold on. Well, let's just talk about, let's settle an argument here. You guys say we should worship over here. We say we should worship over there. Where's the right place to worship? Jesus, what he does is he turns the conversation back to a heart issue. He says, it's not about place, it's about the heart. But I want to listen, I want you to listen to what he says. He says, you worship what you do not know. There's a lot of people like that. A lot of you in here, you worship what you do not know. You come here, you might even sing those songs. You came to my rescue and uh, and, and, and you're singing those songs. But you worship what you don't know because you have not truly surrendered your life to God. He says, you know what? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. He says, for salvation is is from the Jews. That means God chose the Jewish people to be the the first inheritors of the promise and then from the Jewish people to the rest of the world. He says, it's to us first. We, We understand this, but you're still missing it. He says, but the hour is coming and now it is here. He says, it's arrived. It's right here in front of you. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, that's with sincerity, and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God of Spirit and those who worship Him must. Everybody say must. 
you have your Bible, circle that, must worship in spirit and in truth. You see, we buy the lie that somehow, as long as we worship with sincerity, as long as we worship in spirit, as long as we worship with passion, it doesn't matter what we worship or what we believe, as long as we're sincere with Jesus or with God, the truth somehow doesn't matter. And Jesus said, no, sincerity is powerful. Truth is power. It must be truth and spirit. It must be sincerely right. You know, a lot of us, we, we think, you know, head knowledge is enough. Well, theology is not enough either. We must worship in spirit with a sense of inside passion. You know, he says, this is what God must have. See, the truth about God's love is this, is, is this, is it when we don't get the idea that that God is love, we, sh- we, we immediately, or sorry, when we immediately begin to judge the idea that God who is loving would not send people to hell, we must ask ourselves, where would we, where did we ever get this idea that God was love anyhow? Some of us say, well, God is love. He wouldn't do that. Well, how'd you, where'd you get that idea? Well, I got it from the Bible. Oh, so the Bible that tells us that God is a God of justice and wrath, that same Bible that says that about God says that God is love. So you're going to accept this part that God is love, but you're not going to accept the part that God is a God of justice. See, Scripture describes God as holy where sin is uh, consumed. God is described in Scripture as one who is pure where sin is repelled. God is described in Scripture as a God of justice where sin is judged. This loving God that you accept as from the word of God, also tells us other descriptions about God. I want you to write this down. God is love, but the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. See, we we got to understand this. From the very beginning, the Bible has been very clear on this. Over and, The beginning of wisdom is not some big kumbaya group hug. The beginning of wisdom is not some giant Christian love-in. The beginning of wisdom is not even understanding the grace of God. The Bible over and over says the most basic truth is this. Don't mess with God. That's the the beginning of understanding is the fear of God. This is what it says in Proverbs 1, 7. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of understanding. You want to understand God? You want to understand life? You want to understand the afterlife, it begins with understanding how amazingly awesome and even fearful at times God is. In reality, I don't think we would really want a God who is all love and no justice anyhow, maybe for ourselves, but not for others. We want justice. If this afternoon, if you took a break and went out to the movies or went to the mall or had something to do with your family and I showed up at your house and ransacked it, If I kicked down the doors and smashed all the windows and robbed you blind, I don't think you'd want me to go, Grace, I love you, man. You love me, right? No, you want justice. You wouldn't want God to go, hey, you know, people are people. Got to love them. No, you would want justice. Who would want to wink at that? We claim his love when it's us. But when we see injustice, we want justice. That is because we have on us the thumbprint of justice from God in our soul. When the Lord revealed himself to Moses, this is what he said to him in Exodus 34. When he walked by Moses, as he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, this is what God was proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, 
The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's the Jesus. That's the God we love. Yeah, man, we love that. Woohoo! Yeah, man, grace, love, forgiveness, man. But he goes on. The very next thing he says is, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. See, and then the Bible goes on to say that, that Moses falls on his face in humble worship. See, God is slow to anger. He is loving. He is gracious. He is forgiving. He will welcome the wicked, you know, if they are humble and seek his face, but he will not send the guilty away unpunished. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said this. He says, don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Oh, that's deep, Jesus. We like that. Nice so far. Easy words. Don't be afraid of people. But then he says this, but rather be afraid of the one. He's talking about himself. He says, but be afraid of me who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Whoa, 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 Jesus. You're saying that we should be afraid of you? That there's a sense of, you know, Jesus then clarifies, yeah, it's me. Because he says in verse Two verses later, he says, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge him before the Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown him before the Father in heaven. Jesus says, understand this. If there's anything or anyone to ever be afraid of, be afraid of the one who can send you to hell, me. See, when we read and hear this, we don't like it. We don't like these kind of words. We don't like these kind of scriptures. Let's just sing that Jesus is love. How he loves us. Oh, wow. Let's not talk about hell. We, we, we just want to talk. When confronted with words that counter our opinion, here's a simple principle to live by. You can write this down. And that is when we don't agree with God, guess who's right? If God and I are at odds, I, we, you have to realize that God is God and I'm not. This is what Deuteronomy 29, 29 says. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That means God will reveal some things to his people, but there's a lot of things he just will not reveal. There's a lot of secrets that God keeps. He says that we may follow all the words of his law. What he reveals, we are to follow. And then Isaiah 55, 8 says, For my thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, when he says the heavens are higher than the earth, the word heavens there is, is plural. That means it's a reference to the universe. And I want you to think about Mars. I want you to think about Jupiter. I want you to think about Saturn. I want you to think about all the way out past our Milky Way. You know, you've seen the videos where it spans out, pulls out, pulls out, pulls out. And you see the Hubble telescope. And we're like one of many, 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 many universes in what seems to be a, an unending universe, which isn't, it ends and there's God. He says, as far as your thoughts are mine, it's comparable to how far you are to the end of the universe. You'll never ever get there or understand it. That's my thoughts and your thoughts. You just won't ever get me. I will reveal some of myself to you. And what I reveal, you follow. Now, in a minute, I'm going to talk about hell. 
It's popular to discard and write off. Some people tell me God would not do that. In fact, I met with a friend a few weeks ago who right out told me that he uh, decided that, that hell was not part of God's plan anymore and that he didn't want to believe in hell. So, uh, so what I can't help but ask is what you're telling God is to submit to your opinion. What you're saying is that his, what you're saying, his thoughts and your thoughts aren't the same. Well, yeah, that's biblical. Can you understand that possibly God knows something you don't know? Well, I just don't believe in a God that would do that. That would actually send someone to hell. You're like, what? What? You're telling me that there's something you would do that God, um, that, that there's something you wouldn't do that God would do. Can you consider that maybe the creator's sense of justice is greater than yours, that his love, his mercy, his justice are perfect, and that you, that possibly you are the one who is flawed. Because our thoughts are not his thoughts. Here's the truth about eternity, and here's a, here's a crash course on eternity. We're going to go through these pretty quick, because number one, we will all be judged. Every one of us in this room. This is what it says in Hebrews 9, 27, just as man is destined to die once, after that, we all face judgment. Romans 14, 10 says, For we all stand before God's judgment seat. For some, that judgment will be good. And for some, that judgment, not so good. 2 Corinthians 5, 10 says, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in this body, whether good or bad. Ecclesiastes 12 reminds us that we will all give account to our actions before God. Every one of us, when we, not only do we have a date with destiny, every one of us has a date with God. And every one of you in this room will see God one day. Every one of us will all get a chance to see him and we'll have to give an account for this life. Number two, I want you to realize that we all have an eternal destination. There is what's known in the Bible as the great divide. Here's some verses. Malachi 3.18 says, and you will see again the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Matthew 13.49 said, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous, a great separation. This great divide is what we know as heaven and hell. All of Jesus' parables, and he had a lot of them, all of them rounded off to this great significant fact of separation between followers and non-followers, righteous and unrighteous, those that are true and those that are not true, the sheep and the goats, the right and the left. He divides followers from those who do not follow. Matthew 25, 46 is one of those. He says, then they will go, he says, some will go away to eternal, everybody say eternal, eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. Some will say, well, hell's not eternal. Some will say, well, hell is temporary. The hell is, is just one of those kind of like burning away places and then one day we're dead and we're gone and it's all cool or we cease to exist. Well, the Bible does talk very as real and as eternal as heaven is. That is how real and eternal as this punishment This is the words of Jesus. We are eternal beings. We were created for eternity. And our destination is in one of two places. And they are both eternal according to the scripture. And the Bible says there is no purgatory. 
There's no mention of a place where there's a holding ground where you can work off your sins before heaven. That's not in the Bible at all. So heaven will be like this. Again, crash course. Some will say, well, will heaven be like? Well, this is what the Bible says. You've got your notes uh, on that handout. You've got some scriptures. Go home, take them out, and uh, look up these scriptures. Heaven will be a place where there's no sorrow, no death, no pain, no suffering, and no sin. It'll be a place where you will be with Jesus, and Jesus will be with you. It'll be a place where you will be able to worship in the presence of God, it will be a place where you will be given rewards and responsibility. It will be a place where you will be known as you. That means when I get to heaven, I'm going to know my friends and my family that fell asleep. That's what the Bible says death is. Those that have fallen before me have gone to be with Jesus before me in Christ. They are there. I will know them as they were here. I will know my mom. I will know my family. I will know my friends fully. And without sin. And the Bible says you will have a blast. I used to think when I was a young person that heaven would be boring. I always pictured togas. You know, wearing these like long togas. And having, you know, these leaf crowns. And playing harps. And laying on these recliners eating grapes. Uh, You know, that was my idea of heaven. I'm like, it's so not heaven. And the Bible gives a beautiful description of heaven. There's a book by Jerry Alcorn uh, called Heaven. You should check that out. It's a beautiful book describing heaven. This is what 1 Corinthians 2, 9 says. However, it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived are the things God has prepared for those who love him. And you don't have any idea, any idea, any idea what heaven's going to be like. I want you to think of your favorite thing to do. Absolute favorite good thing to do. Some of you are like, well, my favorite things to do is not so good. Well, imagine the joy that you experience doing that thing. Well, that experience, that joy, that feeling, well, that's in heaven. The Bible says every good and perfect gift comes from above. If there's anything here that's good, it's just a glimpse. It's just a taste. It's just a drop in our mind of what heaven will be like. So what will hell be like? It won't be like heaven. Jesus gives us a pretty clear picture of hell. This is what the Bible says hell is. Hell will be a place of unspeakable suffering. The Bible says that people will be tormented day and night with no rest, that there'll be this desire to die, but you cannot die. The Bible says that hell will be a place of unsatisfied craving. Man, it gives this parable of this guy in heaven and he says, please, please just, just dip your finger in water and touch that little drop to my tongue, please. But there'll be no satisfaction. There'll be no satisfaction. The Bible says there'll be unsatisfied cravings, but there'll also be unquenchable flames. The Bible describes this place where fire is never quenched. We're tormented. We're, we're going to look at this verse where it says you're tormented forever and ever. And again, this is, I, don't, I don't believe in a God that would do that. Well, maybe perhaps God does things different than us. And that he is good. He is faithful. He's in control. He is good. If you haven't established he is good, then hell is going to be a hard thing for you to accept. Another thing hell says is it's unending separation from loved ones. There's a reference in the Bible of how he saw uh, people that he knew that he could never talk to, that he could never communicate to, and they never even noticed him. This is in Luke 16. 
unable to get to or talk to the people that you love. And then the Bible says that hell is forever. There will be torment, a place of eternal destination that is fixed. Now, there's a book by Francis Chan called Erasing Hell. If you'd like to read more about hell, I suggest you pick up that book. It's a great book by a guy who I trust who writes with tenderness, with grace, with humility, and with competence. The book is Erasing Hell by Francis Chan. So you got to ask yourself, well, why in the world is there even a place like hell? Why is there such a place as hell? Well, I want you to understand this. First of all, hell was created for Jesus and by Jesus. Jesus created hell, and he created it for himself. This is what it says in Colossians 1.16. For in him, Jesus, all things, everybody say all, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Jesus created hell. Jesus rules over hell. The Bible says in Revelation that Jesus' presence is In hell, though they cannot sense or know or feel his presence, his presence is there in righteous judgment. That, However, it is a place the devil does not want to go. The devil is not on some throne. I've got you now. Welcome. Like somehow the devil is enjoying his life. Man, the devil is living in fear because he knows that one day his destination is hell. He is not in hell. He has not been, you know, uh, you know, contracted out by Jesus to manage hell for me. You know, Jesus didn't go, hey, I need somebody who could take over this place. Oh, man, I hate that devil, dude. But, you know, he's the best person for the job. He does hate me and hate people. Hey, devil, would you be king of hell? Would you rule, would you rule on a throne? Yeah. <laughs> no, the devil is, you know, the devil's not in hell right now. You know where the Bible says he is? He's on the earth, he and his legion of fallen angels, seeking whom he may devour and destroy. The enemy is not in hell. His destination is in hell. The next thing I want you to know is that hell was created to deal righteously with Satan. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41. He says, then he will say to those on the left, depart from me. Sorry, that's my left. Uh, Those, uh, depart from me. Those who are cursed into eternal fire prepared or created, designed for the devil and his angels, the fallen angels. Satan is not there. He's not manager. He's avoiding it. And here's another thing I want you to realize about hell, that hell was also created to deal righteously with sinners. Second Thessalonians 1.8, this is a very hard passage to read, but I want you to hear this. It says, he will punish He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. That's from knowing him and from the glory of his might, away from the joy and the pleasure of knowing God's presence. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among those who have believed. There is a day when those who do not know God will find their place with the enemy. So I don't like this. I don't like this message. That means there's a lot of people. You're trying to tell me that there's a lot. Yeah. The Bible says many are called, but few 
are chosen. The Bible says that wide is the path that leads to destruction, but narrow is the road that leads to life, and few are the ones that find it. There's a real good chance that some of you in this room do not accept this and do not accept Jesus. And there's a really small likelihood that everyone in this room has found the narrow way. The truth about God's justice is this. God's holiness is far more awesome and pure than we can envision. His holiness is greater than we can even think. You see, we tend to think of holiness in comparison to our own good deeds or in comparison to the good people that we see around us. We tend to grade holiness by our own lives, but we cannot even imagine the holiness and purity and righteousness of God. We cannot envision this. We tend to downplay his goodness and purity so that we somehow don't look as sinful. Here's another thing about God's justice, you need to realize that sin is far worse and more deadly than we could ever imagine. It's more destructive than we can imagine, so much that the punishment for sin is capital punishment. That means death. That means the punishment for just the smallest sin, it doesn't matter what it is, is death in the eyes of God. Because he is holy and we cannot even envision how holy, pure, and righteous he is and how deadly and harmful and dangerous sin is. And there's a a fact of justice. Write this down is that our good deeds cannot fix this. The Bible says our good actions, our good deeds, our good efforts, we cannot somehow weigh the scale in our favor with good deeds, with donations, with mission trips, with opening doors for people, with, with being kind. Somehow, no matter what we put on the scale, it still does not bring weight to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We think if we just outweigh those things that somehow God will weigh in our favor. But just like anthrax, it doesn't take much. It doesn't matter how much sin we have, you're dead. If you could imagine sin like anthrax, which is one of the most dangerous chemicals on the planet, 10,000 spores will kill you. 10,000 spores are almost minuscule. They're like one flake of 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 a powder. That will kill you in three days. Sin is more dangerous than that. See, the two scariest lies in the world right now, that Satan loves these lies. The two lies are you are a good person and that God loves you too much to punish you or anybody. Well, God would not do that. People believe this around the world. People believe that they're a good person, that they do more good than bad. So that makes them okay. And as long as we're sincere, as long as God's good. So if we're good, then somehow God's more than good. He's better than, he's holy. Holy is not good. He is good. That means his actions, his motives are pure, but he's more than good. He's righteous, holy. So even our goodness won't measure up. It says, this is what it says. See, you think, well, I'm a good person. Well, God thinks differently. This is what it says in Romans. It says, uh, Romans 3.10, it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one, not even one of you. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. 
all have turned away. They have together become worthless. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. You're t- Jesus just called every person's actions worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. No one is good. This is what the Bible uh, is. This is what is known in the Bible as total depravity. There is nothing good in you apart from Jesus. You can't even do anything good. Verse 23 says, for all have sinned. Every one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans five twelve says we're born with this problem. God looks and he sees no one on their own ability righteous. You say, well, I'm a good person. Well, God sees you as, well, he loves you, but he sees your actions as worthless. Well, God surely wouldn't punish people for that. Well, Romans 3.23 says, 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. That's the word punishment. He says, man, because we're all sinners, we're all going to be punished. We all deserve it and we can't fix it. That's a big problem for us, but that's a great news to share the world that there is an answer that's been given. And the answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer to that problem. Remember, God is holy, he's perfect, he's pure, he's right in every way, knows all things, aware of all things. God is good in every way. And we can't help but ask, how could a loving God actually punish people? How could a, God wouldn't do that. You might, you know, would a loving God flood the whole earth? Would a loving God like destroy the entire planet except for a handful of people? Yes, he would. Would a loving God destroy entire cities? Well, yes, he would. Because God is just. And he is filled with great mercy and, and slow to anger, but he's also one who is just. Would he really torture someone and beat someone and put someone through a horrible death? Yes, he would. Just look at the cross of Jesus. Would a loving God torment someone forever and ever? That doesn't seem fair. This is what Revelation 20.10 says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's a creation of God. Though he's evil, the devil, man, be like, yeah, the devil needs to go to hell. Devil should go to hell, but nobody else should. Not me, for sure. But the devil, yeah. Hitler, yeah. Mussolini, yeah. Some of these dictators, Saddam Hussein, yeah. Send those guys to hell, but not normal people. Somehow there's like we grade. Like at what point is someone hell worthy? I'll tell you when, according to the Bible, that first lie, that first stumble, that first selfish act. The Bible says, well, that's a, that's a symptom of a disease you have, of sin that you were born with. Jesus is that remedy. But if we don't acknowledge that, this is what the very next few verses say in the same chapter. He says, this devil will be tormented forever and ever. Verse 15, it says, and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire also. Creations of God. When we look at this truth, we need to ask who is the final authority. When we look at the scriptures, we need to ask who makes the call? Who makes the call on heaven? Is it culture? Will it be popular opinion? Will it be some pastor? Will it be some author of some book? 
Will it be Oprah? Will it be Dr. Phil? Will it be our friends? Will it be ourselves? Because somehow our opinion's better than what the Bible says. Who will be the final authority? Or is it going to be God's word? If we examine those two lies that you're a good person, which you're not, and that no one will be punished, which is not true, If we examine these two lies, we discover that we all need the salvation of God and that Satan will lie and tell you you are a good person. He will lie and tell you that you need to do nothing to be saved. He will lie and tell you that the cross is unnecessary, but the cross shouts. The sin is painful. The sin is horrible. The cross shouts how horrible sin is and how costly sin is and how bloody sin is and how scary sin is and how violent sin is and how abusive sin is and how sin will be punished before Christ is the punishment for our sin if we will accept that. When we look at the cross, God wouldn't punish sin. Yes, he would just look at Jesus because he's bearing the punishment right now. Simply put, sin will cost you your life or it will cost you his life. It's what it comes down to. God, seeing the destructiveness of our own sin, came to us as Jesus. He received on himself the punishment of sin for us all, for all who would trust and follow him. Either you die in Christ or you die in sin. It's just that simple. Well, only a bigot thinks that. Only a bigot, only a narrow-minded, small-minded, intolerant bigot truly thinks that Jesus is the only way. I mean, come on. Well, then you must think that Jesus is a bigot because those were his words. John 14, 6 is our theme verse of our church. It is that Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 14, 12, he says, there is no other name on earth by which man can be saved. No other name except Jesus. Who's arrogant is those that claim that Jesus was a good person and a good teacher, and maybe even the greatest person that ever lived, but completely clueless and confused about who he was. That's pretty arrogant to make that call. How can you say he is great and clueless? If being a Buddhist, a Hindu, a Muslim, or a sincere person, or a good person, or if works can get you there, if there is any other way, then Jesus died on the cross needlessly. If, if you are a Christian and you think, well, I think there's other ways and I've just found minus Jesus and other ways. Well, then why did Jesus even die on the cross if there was another way? If there was another way, the cross was not necessary. In fact, just before he was arrested, he was in the garden that night. Jesus was at a rock crying out to the father and he said, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. And the father said, there is no other. Jesus said, your will be done. There is no other way. If there was any other way, the cross was a waste of time. And Jesus died needlessly. So here's what it comes down to. We have the heavenly tension and the heavenly invitation. Some of you who are followers of Christ, this is the challenge for you. And that is the the tension of heaven. Some of you, you want to be there so bad. I remember we were just talking about this, Nicole, with some friends, is that my grandmother, when she was nearing the end of her life, when she hit 80, that's all she could talk about. She wanted, to, she wanted to die. She loved Jesus, and she just talked about heaven all the time. 
she was ready to go. And every time we met, it's like, I want to go to heaven. I wish, well, I can't wait to go to heaven. I wish I could go to heaven. I want to be in heaven. And I'm like, this is the verse for her. This is the verse for you. If you're here, it doesn't matter how old you are. If you miss someone, you want to be with them. Philippians 121 says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, honestly, he says, man, if I'm going to be alive, it's for Jesus. But if I'm going to die, man, that would be awesome. I'd love to go to heaven. I'd love to be with Jesus. Verse 22 says, but if I'm going to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. It's good for me to stay here for now. He says, yet, what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I mean, I want to live here, and I know I can do a lot of good if I put my heart into living here for Jesus. But so much of me wants to be out of this crazy, mixed up, messed up world. And this is what he says. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is by far better. But it is more necessary for me, for you, that I remain in the body. He says, life may be hard, but you need me here. And this is the heavenly tension. Maybe you miss someone, but live. Maybe you want to go on to be with Jesus, but live. Maybe you wish this life was over. You're you're tired. You're fed up. You're exhausted. Everything seems to be falling apart. Live. Live. And here's the heavenly invitation. I want to end with this. John 3. 16, you guys know the verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, hell, but have everlasting life, heaven. God loved you so much that he gave his life. The very next verse is revealing. The very next two verses say this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. See, that's the good news. That's what Jesus, that's why we are here. The good news is you can know peace in this life and peace in the next. Verse 18, the very next, he says, whoever believes in him is not condemned or punished, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So I want to challenge you. You say, well, God would never send somebody to hell. Well, technically, you send yourself to hell because your sin has already condemned you. Jesus didn't come to condemn and to throw people into hell, though a day will come when he will return and those who were bullheaded and arrogant and prideful and and too deceived and bought the lie that he was not needed, those people will have a, a resting place with the enemy but he provided a way for you so that you wouldn't be in that number. But he's not here to condemn you. He's here to redeem you. But our sin is already condemning us. So I have an invitation for you today. Bow the knee to Christ. I want to end with this video and then I want to come back and pray for you. This is the story of our life. Of all the fears that grip our hearts, no fear is greater than the fear of death. 
There are those who will tell you that death is a natural part of life. But if death is just a part of life, then why does it cause us such anger and sorrow? When God created humanity, he intended for us to grow more and more beautiful over time. But in one tragic moment, we unleashed sin into the world, and everything broke, including our bodies. Death is the ultimate consequence of sin, and it fills God's heart with anger and sorrow even more than it does ours, because death was not a part of God's original plan. The Bible says that when Jesus approached the tomb of his friend Lazarus, he quaked with rage, and his eyes filled with tears. He was overwhelmed by the suffering caused by death, a curse we had brought upon ourselves. Death's curse was physical. Both the world and our bodies were decaying. But death's curse was also spiritual, eternally separating humanity from their creator, the source of all light, love, and life. But because of God's amazing love, he chose to surrender all power and glory to rescue us from death. Jesus, God's only son, was expelled from the presence of the Father and thrust into complete darkness in our place. He took humanity's curse upon himself, breaking death's grip on us and purchasing humanity a place at the Father's side forever. A day is coming when the true king will return at last to restore the world to its full glory and us with it, renewing both soul and body. You'll still be yourself, but even more so. You'll finally be the real you. On that day, we'll look at each other and say, I always knew you could be like this. I saw glimpses of the real you, flashes of it, and now here you are. Our future is not an ethereal, impersonal one. You're not going to float through the clouds. You're going to walk. You're going to eat. You're going to laugh. You're going to hug. You're going to sing in realms and degrees of power and joy that you cannot now imagine. Some will tell you not to fear death because it's part of life. But Jesus says not to fear death because it's been defeated. And the day will come when Jesus embraces you with his nail-scarred hands and says, Welcome home. I have so much to show you. You know, one day I will die and I will run in the fields of eternity and I will climb the great mountains of glory and I will ski down them and I will gaze across the eternal seas of heaven and I will meet my Savior and I will worship at the feet of my Lord Jesus. And when I get there, I know who I want to see there. the lie 
rather trust this, this hope, this truth, this, this beauty. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you, Lord, that you didn't leave us in our sin to self-destruct, to ruin ourselves. God, that you didn't leave us, that you leave humanity. earth and you gave your life. You took our sin. You took our punishment. You took our shame. You took the wrath of God so that we might know the hope of God. If you're here right now, what a way to spit in the face of the enemy. What a way to say Jesus is Lord of every day of my life. Even this week of darkness to say that Jesus is King is Lord, here's my life. I want to lead you in a, in a chance to say yes to Christ. Just a very simple prayer. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you that you gave your life for me. Forgive me of my sin. I trust in you. Here's my life. Here's my heart. Here's all that I have. Here's all my questions, my fears, my doubts in my unbelief. God, take what little I have and receive it. Thank you, Jesus, for taking my life. Teach me, walk with me, fill me with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And I believe Jesus touched some hearts today. I know he touched mine. And I hope that you will have that serious conversation with those that you love. Because this is something that we can't get wrong. Let's pray for the offering. And I want to end with a couple of thoughts. And Sean has an announcement or two. Let's pray. God, thank you for this opportunity to worship you with our giving, with the offering. And uh, God, help us to be faithful, Lord. You know what we have a need of. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.